Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Immediately after the fire, one backpacker inadvertently seemed to become the most recognisable of the 69 survivors who escaped the blaze. My name's Keith O'Brien. Early June 2000, I was in Childers in Queensland fruit picking, just travelling back down the coast, back down towards Sydney. And I ended up uh, staying at uh, the palace. In fact, he'd been there since April, which is a long time in the itinerant fruit-picking community. But he'd grown fond of the town and the friendly locals and was saving cash to head south to Sydney and eventually travel through Asia on the way home to the UK. His parents had bought him a return ticket to Australia for his 21st birthday. He celebrated his 22nd just two days before the fire. You know, I probably stayed longer in Childer than... I probably wanted to. But you meet up with some great people and we're just having a good time as well. Fruit picking was hard work, you know, it's compared to what I do now. <laughs> you know, there's people who are working considerably harder. Yeah. And, you know, I just wanted to just see what happened. That's what I tended to do, see what happens. He was the first of the survivors I met on the morning of June 23. I'd been asked to do a phone interview with morning radio presenter, the late Stan Zamanik. Keith was sitting near the public telephone booth and we struck up a conversation. He was a lad's lad, live hard, play hard. And the night before was no different, a day in the fields followed by a few beers with his mate from country New South Wales, Phil Vaughan. And uh, we went and sat in the lounge put the tellies on and uh, we both fell asleep. Usually you just leave the other one, stuff you sort yourself out. But I woke up and I woke Phil up, said, get to your room, mate, we'll see you in the morning. And then headed off. I went to my room, he went off to his room. Straight to sleep, but it's less than an hour later when the fire takes hold. You heard screaming. You know, it wasn't that much longer after I'd been in bed, to be honest. So I wasn't really in a deep sleep. Heard people screaming, shouting, looked out the window to see flames. Yeah. You know, that point is uh, get get out. So you could see flames out your window? Yeah, yeah. I look out the window, put my head through the bar, look through the window to the left-hand side, and the flames were coming underneath from the, the lounge area. Phil's room was at the far end on the same floor, on the, on the level above the lounge. Where does your mind go when when you realise what's going on with something like that? Uh, get your ass out of there. One of the, uh, the roommates I had with me, I woke her up, said, come on, there's a fire, we need to get out. We just need to get out. He was in a twin room with Welsh girl Kelly Simons. Their beds assigned seemingly more by design than chance. 
we didn't know each other we met there we just i don't even know how we ended up in the same room i think you know what we both talked in our sleep i was on the bottom bunk she was on the top bunk and there was a third bunk that was empty i don't even know how, we, how she ended up in that room yeah. but yeah i think it's probably because uh, we both talked in the sleep and it didn't matter to either one so it was a pokey little room like but yeah that's, that's how we ended up in that room Kelly was travelling with her friends Natalie Morris and Sarah Williams, who were both staying in room seven, where all ten occupants lost their lives in the fire. I thought, nice and calm, you can you can go out the door, go out of the door, make a right, make a right, make another right, very short distance, and we walked out of the room and you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. You know, we uh, we stumbled, the door was shut on our room, which was then locked. There was a bathroom to the left of our room. It wasn't a used bathroom. I think it was still under construction. Put Kelly in there, just say, stay here. Went back to try and get into our room. Thought we'll have to go through the window. There was a probably about a foot and a half, maybe two foot gap between the window and the veranda outside. Went back into the bathroom, pulled Kelly into the room again. Pulled her out the window with some people on the opposite side on the veranda, pulled her out. And then I, I managed to squeeze through the bars on the window and got pulled out onto the veranda. We then went down the set of stairs, down the side of the uh, hostel, where there was uh, a passageway that led to the uh, the front street. I remember being with a few people there, and we had to get through the gate, Brett Parker being one of them. We all came out onto the front, and you could just see the full extent of what had happened. You could see the whole building on fire. I honestly thought we opened this door, we can just walk out, you know. And it wasn't fair. You had to walk, come out the door, quick right, quick. I mean, the sharp rights, these. There was a few steps up and then right, and then you're straight out, you go forward and you're straight out onto the veranda. I thought it was something I'd walked, you know, dozens and dozens of times. You think, I can do this. And when you walk out and you're just hit by a cloud, you know, you just couldn't see anything. It was filling your lungs, you couldn't see anything, everything's hot. Yeah. Did you fear for your life at that point? I think I feared more for Kelly's life than I felt for mine. You know, I felt that she she had to get out. If I got out, brilliant. But just the way I was raised is if you can help somebody out, you help them out. You know, but yeah, you you certainly fear her. There was obviously an element in there. My cameraman at the time, Mick Gray, who you heard from in episode eight, was recording interviews with survivors on the street. Keith was the first he recorded this interview, courtesy of the Seven Network. Okay, tell us what happened, Matt. Uh, we've got woke up, somebody's banging doors, smashing windows, everyone's walking around, uh, nobody knew what it was because they usually knock you up for work in the morning. Look out the window, there's flames leaping all over the place, you've got fire alarms in there. I don't think any of them went off. Search so, crazy stuff all going on, big time crazy. Were you asleep at the time? Yeah, man. What did you think when you awoke? Shit myself. You, um, you had to help with What, mate? Yeah, yeah, sign the sheet, yeah. You had to help someone out, did you? I had to help her roommate out. We walked out the room, she fell over and cracked her head on the floor, picked her up, kicked our door down and had to shove her out a little tiny window. Not one fire alarm went off, not one nothing. It's been disappointing? Disappointing, mate. This shit just wrecked, just wrecked a lot of people's lives. 
not persons, people over here, you know, 40,000 miles from home, stuff like that. And I've got a thing to the name. Just pray to God there's no one in there. You're angry yeah. about that straight away, aren't you? Yeah. At that time, you didn't know whether anyone, anyone hadn't got out. But just what had happened was enough as why, why have you put people in danger by not having functioning systems that you should be required to have at all times, certainly when you're in the business that you're in. By the time the accused was tried in a Brisbane court, Keith was called back to testify. My former colleague from the Seven Network, Jennifer Nichols, reported on that at the time. Still stuck on the rooftop as the fire raged, Mr Atkinson says a backpacker called Keith O'Brien began yelling up at them that he wanted to kill them. When they were finally helped down by ladder, they asked their security guard to stay around in case he came back. Do you have much recollection Does of that? fire alarms haven't gone off? They'd switched the fire alarms off. That was what was coming out, that they weren't even working, but the fact that they weren't working, they should be held accountable at that stage, I think they should be held accountable. We didn't know it was arson, irrespective of if it was arson or not. That building wasn't safe to be in. The status of those fire alarms would be a recurring theme through the investigation into the fire. But to understand the calamity that is the alarms, you kind of need to understand the history of the building itself. Remember, Council CEO Steve Johnson told us this earlier in the series. Ironically, why it was in such good shape is it was rebuilt after the previous fire. So in 1902, I think it was, it was rebuilt. And it had been the premier hotel in, in Childers for all those years. It had been the place where, you know, travelling salesmen would stay. And, and I think at one stage it, had a, it might have even had a ballroom attached to it. So it had been a pretty significant building to a lot of people for a long time when it was a hotel. So, as Steve said, after the rebuild, it operated as a hotel for 85 years. Then when Roy Salt bought it in 1987, the bar was removed and he turned it into an antique shop. Then in 1991, he sells it to Patricia Woods. And she lives there for two years before meeting a bloke named Peter Moore, who pitches the idea of turning it into a backpacker's hostel. So Patricia moves out and leases the building to him. When you think about it, it's a great business model, really, with the demand for workers on the small crop farms in the area, there was certainly a need for more public accommodation options. So he consulted council, he spoke with the fire safety officer for the region, and he seemed to go above and beyond what was required of him at the time. You see, the thing is, there was a quirk in the law back then Council was making recommendations, a bit of a wish list, if you like, that would give them peace of mind under the building code. But as for fire alarms, well, there actually wasn't an obligation as such because the palace had been built prior to 1975 and the fire safety requirements only applied to buildings erected after 1975. Still, Peter Moore appeared to be doing all the right things, as it was being converted, there were regular checks by council at least three times a week with an agreement that a final inspection would take place once the work was fully completed. Well, something changed. That never happened. Council was never invited back and it had no powers of entry without the owner's consent. Now, it, it wasn't unusual for the Childers firefighters to pop into the palace over the years. 
sadly, Hayden Whittakup, who was one of the first responders that we heard from in episode one, told me they were actually due to do one on the night of the fire. As a tool, we had a um, fire inspection booked for the backpackers on the Thursday night, which was cancelled, and we got there six hours later anyway. Yeah, well, yeah. And what would that inspection have entailed? Just checking the... Just a, no, just a walk around. It basically more of a, for us guys, as a familiarisation on, on local buildings so that we knew floor plans and layouts and just got familiar with them for, for guys in the crew that didn't spend time in those buildings. Come a dark night in, in, in the heat of the moment with smoke and fire or whatever in that situation, that you'd have a rough layout in your mind of the building and structures and how they were, how they were made. So how much earlier than that had you, like, had you done one of them in the months leading we, up to it? Um, we had been to that, bu- that building previously as, as with other buildings around town. Um, we usually did them about every six or 12 months sort of thing. Do, do you remember going through the, the palace yeah. though? Yeah. yeah, I've been to the palace, yeah. Who knows what could have been if that inspection had have gone ahead, hey? But it's fair to say the welcome mat was being rolled out a bit more freely as the years went on. Peter Moore left in mid-94 and the lease was taken on by John and Sue Gardner. They set about renovating the building and converted the upstairs bathroom, which was at the time being used as a vacant storeroom, into a 10-bed dormitory. It would eventually be known as Room 7. Now, in that room, there were two sets of doors. One of them had a bay of triple bunks obstructing them. So instead of reconfiguring the room and moving the beds, the doors were taken out of play and secured with screws. There was also a sash window covered with metal security bars. It's unknown when they were installed, but it was certainly before the building was converted to a backpacker's hostel. Now, back to the fire alarm system. It's in 1997 that the gardeners start to notice problems. It's malfunctioning, so they get a local electrician in to take a look. Now, they can't work out the problem, so part of the system gets dismantled and sent to the manufacturer in Brisbane for repair. As an interim measure, some standalone smoke alarms are installed. It takes a few weeks, but they get sent back, refitted, and seems to work just fine up until the lease on the building is sold yet again, this time to Christian Atkinson and John Dope. They're a couple of uni mates who'd taken a new direction after spending the previous years hunting for diamonds in Canada and Western Australia. By this time, fire regulations had started to tighten up. Well, kind of, you see. As part of the sale, John Gardner gets asked for a fire inspection certificate. There wasn't one, so there's a legal argument over who should pay for one. There's a bit of blokey small talk and assurances. It appears there were conversations had, but there seems to be no record of it actually being done. We do know there was an inspection by the Childers Fire Brigade just before the handover. Records show concerns were raised then about the number of people in the rooms, the evacuation plan and the placement of those triple bunks in room seven. But it appears when the lease changed hands, as far as the fire alarms go, there was nothing more than John Gardner giving the new managers a verbal instruction session during the handover in March 99. 
And to be fair, it works fine for the next eight months, but by year's end, it's starting to malfunction again. So the same local Sparky comes to check it out. Again, it gets sent to Brisbane for repair, but they appear to be temporary fixes. Come late April 2000, it's malfunctioning regularly. There's different versions of who was responsible for getting it fixed, but it seems that in any case, it didn't happen. And somewhere between mid to late May, about a month before the palace was set alight, a decision was made to switch the fire alarms off. There were smoke alarms in the building, but no smoke alarms had gone off. No smoke alarms woke us up, nothing like that. They'd been switched off, we'd found out. But no smoke alarms had been working that night. It's a decision that will forever haunt the backpackers who escaped and the families of those who didn't. How do you feel about the smoke alarm situation? It, it's obviously not right, um, and it, yeah, it, it seems inconceivable now, I suppose, as it does then, that they weren't on or they perhaps they hadn't been fixed or were in the process. That's James Whitehurst. He was staying in room 17. How can you explain that? How can you say how that was the decision that the owners came to to do what they did in regards to not fixing or turning off. Malfunctions aside, there are some other theories as to why they were turned off. Backpackers smoking in the rooms and setting off the alarms, or the batteries being stolen to power up CD Walkmans that predated digital music players. It's most likely a mixture of all of the above. Whatever the reason, it was a monumental price to pay for the cost of new alarms or a fire brigade call-out fee or even a pack of AA batteries. I can look at it a little bit differently now, you know, 20 years on, and maybe how you can articulate things now, but at the end of the day, you come up, no smoke alarms are gone. I've lost that. At that point, at that point, I honestly just thought I've lost everything. We didn't know people had come, hadn't gotten out. There was that many people in there. But you're thinking, all of this stuff, what's happened there? I was stood, you know, in a pair of football shorts and a singlet. That's literally all I had. I, I know that might sound selfish to some people now. And, and people who know realise that, you know, you, you, you have to think about yourself as well. I'd done my part. I'd gotten Kelly out, and then you start to look at it, but no smoke alarms had gone off. Not one. And, and that still, for me, is a bugbear that happened with that. So, you know, since then, all my staff, and I have working for me all over the country, I'm like, make sure that that's working. Make sure that that's working. Do your checks. Get them done. Yeah. A simple thing could have saved a lot of people's lives. Yeah, it could have been a lot worse when you think about it, quickly, particularly the design of the buildings and the fact that the um, smoke alarms weren't working properly and, and windows barricaded off and, you know, like, it's not just like a normal, like it was a hotel with, with several rooms, like, they, you know, they made them into dormitories and you've got bunks over the doorways and, and things, you know, so, you know, there's stories of people saying, like, it was up here dark and the power went off and the smoke and, you know, it's lucky anybody get out of the building, you know. That's Childers Police Sergeant Jeff Fay. 
It's unclear how many of the residents in the palace at the time knew that the smoke alarms weren't working. Probably days afterwards, people realised that we didn't hear anything from a smoke alarm or anything like that. But one man most certainly did. And that makes what happened that night all the more evil. For the 15 people who died and the 69 who still to this day hold on to layers of survivors' guilt that they managed to get out alive. You know, I find it hard to process that uh, someone could be so callous as to deliberately light something. We were very lucky that we didn't have 80-something deaths uh, due to the fact that, you know, Robert Long portrayed that he only wanted to scare people, but uh, obviously he'd stayed in the hostel himself and he knew there were fire alarms. He was in the building and knew they hadn't gone off and he left the building ablaze uh, without trying to warn anyone. The other matter taken into consideration was the number of occupants in the building that night. Between the residents and staff, there were 88 all up. And this came under scrutiny at the coronial inquest six years after the fire. It was noted that the hostel was permitted by council to operate with up to 90 people in residence. But where it's a little murky is around a local law which came into operation in 1996. It dealt with council's requirements for rental accommodation. Now the policy, which provided the guidelines as to how occupancy levels are calculated, didn't come into effect for another three years. But still, that's a full year before the palace fire. The coroner pointed out that if it had have been applied when the fire occurred in June 2000, the number of residents in the palace should have been capped at 53. Certainly a lot less than were in the palace that night. Now, it is important to make it very clear, Christian Atkinson and John Dobe were cleared of any criminal negligence by the coroner. He noted that there was evidence that they had made considerable efforts to get the smoke alarm fixed, and they were in the process of a possible upgrade at the time of the fire. The fact that they were prepared to live in the building themselves was also taken as proof that they couldn't possibly foresee what was about to happen that night. Although the number of occupants in the building, especially in room seven, the fastening of those doors and the placement of triple bunks in front of them was widely critiqued and criticised. Although the coroner said blame couldn't squarely sit with the managers because others had noticed it and not done anything about it either. Nonetheless, the Childers fire would be the catalyst for swift change when it came to smoke alarm regulations in Queensland, led by the Premier of the time, Peter Beattie. The big thing for us, and we had to be cautious how we said this, was to say, well, how the hell did this happen? Why did it happen? And how do we make sure that it doesn't happen again? We'll go further into that later in the series, but sadly it was introduced all too late to save any of the Palace 15. Young men like Gary Sutton and Mike Lewis, a couple of good mates from England who worked as croupiers at a Bristol casino before heading off to Australia. They always had a smile on their faces. I think they've been doing some croupier work at the casinos beforehand, so they were always <laughs> playing cards with dealing cards or, I mean, one that could play guitar. And they, they were just always there chatting or welcoming other people or, you know, 
they were just good souls. Right? Never overheard them having a bad word for anybody. Something was going on, you know, with their, with their friends, with their, their sort of network, if you like. Um, they were they were always at the at the centre of, of what it was. Um, you know, pass them in the hostel or say hello, how was your day? I always have a, a chat. So you, you knew they were well loved within their circle of friends and liked in general all around. They're the sort of people you want to be. You want to be put into a, a hostel with. <laughs> yeah, if you needed help, they'd be able to lend a hand or offer a bit of advice or something like that. If they hadn't been there and done it themselves, then they, were, they probably knew somebody who had. Um, they, yeah, they were those type of people. There's a great story Keith O'Brien told me about Gary and Mike. He actually met them on his travels at a hostel in Brisbane about four months before the fire. Now, remember earlier in the episode, Keith mentioned he's a pretty bad sleep talker. Well, he got put in the same room as Gary and Mike, and it seems the boys got given a pretty rude introduction to that through what Keith described as a particularly loud episode one night. He says he can still see the look on their faces the next morning. And long may that memory last. My thanks to Keith and all the guests who shared their stories in this episode. It was written and produced by me, Paul Cochran. All the epic editing and original sound design provided by Zoltan Fecho. This project is supported by the Bundaberg Regional Council. They run the memorial to the victims of the fire in Childers. It is simply stunning. I highly recommend you getting along for a visit and to pay your respects if you can. Please don't forget to hit subscribe and tell your friends about the podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.